Pro Vice Chancellor, President Snowling, Professor Ballister, colleagues, friends, family, and most importantly, students. It's a great honor and a pleasure to welcome you here tonight. It's also a special pleasure indeed to welcome Mrs. Drew Hines here this evening. Mrs. Hines's commitment to the arts and letters in the United States and internationally cannot be overestimated. This includes the Writers' Prizes at Hovenden and at the University of Pittsburgh Press, her pivotal role in the Paris Review, and her essential commitment to American literature at Oxford. We are especially grateful to have her here with us this evening. I begin tonight with the true story of Emerson's lesser-known essay, Nature, a failed marriage, a secret departure, and the 315 train to Memphis. When the afternoon train from Little Rock, Arkansas to Memphis, Tennessee departed Union Station on, on Saturday, January 9, 1915, its list of passengers included a tall, determined-looking 30-year-old woman named Blanche Chenault Junkin. Among her many self-reported talents, Junkin was a devoted reader of Emerson. Her departure that day from Little Rock followed her departure by carriage from her outlying village of Sweet Home, Arkansas, where she had decided to leave behind for good her accomplished domestic household. In leaving Sweet Home behind, Junkin was taking leave of her three young sons. Chenault was eight years old, Presley was seven, at four years old, Abner was the youngest. In leaving Sweet Home behind, Junkin was also abandoning the gravestone of her only daughter, Mary Elizabeth, who had died four years earlier at the age of just six months. The children's father and Blanche's husband, Dr. Samuel Presley Junkin, knew nothing of her exit. Dr. Junkin was an all-around country doctor, the only physician in the county. He was a favorite of his community. He was admired for his talents by the financially well-off patients visiting the doctor's Granite Mountain Hospital for everything from mineral spring baths to the treatment of serious diseases to the delivery of babies. He was loved by his poorer patients, many of whom, as African Americans, were required to visit a separate entrance for his willingness to accept payment in the form of produce. Dr. Junkin's proprietorship of the Granite Mountain Hospital might suggest a stable fiscal basis for the Junkin family, but the household often struggled to make ends meet. These struggles owed in part to Dr. Junkin's lax rules around payment. The Junkin family always had plenty of squash, potatoes, beans, and country ham, but the finer things in life were out of reach. Much later in life, when Blanche Junkin was in her 70s, she began to write down fragmented memories from these early days in Sweet Home. She scribbled her memories on envelopes, on receipts, and on torn-away corners of newsprint. She was preparing notes for the life's story she intended to write. The template she had in mind for structuring the story of her life was the story of Jane Welsh Carlyle, the wife of Thomas Carlyle. The Carlisle marriage, as some of you may know, was not a happy one. Neither was Junkins. In the four hours that she had before arriving in Memphis by train, Junkin resolved to do several things, each of them involving literary entanglements. 
The first was to prepare for a life of autonomy. Her preparations would be economic, philosophical, and spiritual. For the first of these, the economic junkin required immediate assistance. As was common in the period and in the place, there was a representative from the Young Women's Christian Association, or YWCA, on board the train to Memphis. The YWCA representative walked the length of the train, offering guidance and assistance to any young woman who appeared to need it. Junkin stopped her and solicited advice about a cheap place to stay in Memphis. She needed to save as much of the money she had on hand as possible in order to fund her search for employment in Memphis. The YWC agent recommended taking a room at the Anne Brinkley home for young working women, a two-story, gothic-gabled wood-frame boarding house that had been established and was subsidized by the Memphis philanthropist Hugh Brinkley in honor of his mother. Junkin followed the advice of the young woman from the Y. On entering her cheap rented room, she found a small new newspaper clipping on top of the dressing table. It was, a, it was a clipping of a poem titled, What's the Use? The title was a bit misleading. The poem was an enconium to the salutary effects of forced good cheer in the face of strife. Now we know these many details of Junkin's travels to Memphis because of the second pledge she made to herself during her four hour train ride. As she watched the sunlight dim over the hills and bluffs of eastern Tennessee and I'm sorry, Eastern Arkansas and West Tennessee, Junkin resolved to begin keeping a diary. Not long after her arrival in Memphis, she visited a Rexall drugstore, a sort of American turn-of-the-century boots. There, she purchased a blank school composition book. Her purchase that January inaugurated a practice that Junkin would sustain over the next 50 years. During that time, she would fill hundreds of composition books with writings, clippings, pictures, and drawings. The first volume from 1915 bears sustained attention. What that volume says and how it says it capture a moment in Junkin's life. The volume also resonates with more familiar fictional writing associated with turn-of-the-century women, including Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper from 1892, Kate Chopin's The Awakening from 1899, and Edith Wharton's House of Mirth from 1905. The first indication of Junkin's state of mind at this moment comes in a clipping pasted into the front cover of that Rexall composition book. The clipping is from either a recent King James Bible or a newspaper reprinting chapters of that version. It includes verses 1 through 16 of Revelations chapter 12. The first verse of that chapter encapsulates Junkin's enduring view of herself as registered across the 50 years of her diaries. It reads, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. The clipping represents a fair view of Junkin's sense of herself as something of a divine emissary. It also says a great deal about how she related to the Bible. Junkin consulted the, her Bible for its views on women's property rights, its condemnations of wayward husbands, and its valorizations of mothers. <coughs> If she held a passage dear, and if that passage happened to use he as a gender-neutral pronoun when referring either to God or to human beings in general, she would change the verse to suit her views. Out came the red pencil, out went the he, immediately to be replaced with a firmly drawn she. 
After the right to vote for women was first acknowledged in the United States in 1920, five years after her journey to Memphis, Junkin would be the first woman in her precinct to cast a ballot. The first entry written in her own hand in Junkin's diary reads as follows. I, Blanche Chenault Junkin, do use these testimonies to verify every statement that at any time I may be called upon to give as to my whereabouts from the time I left my home in Little Rock, Arkansas, up to the present time. The tone of the entry might strike you as unusual and as per perhaps anticipating a forensic eye. The entries that follow also give pause. On page two of her diary, she recounts how on the Monday after her arrival in Memphis, Junkin paid a visit to the office of the Memphis chief of police. She visited the police in order to introduce herself using her maiden name, Blanche Chenault. She did so, she writes in her diary, in order to conceal her identity. She hoped to foreclose the customary questions asked of a woman traveling alone and boarding in a cheap hotel. As she notes in her diary, these questions would have included, is your husband dead? How long have you been married? Any children? <coughs> Right alongside that initial handwritten entry documenting her passage from Little Rock to Memphis, her visit to the police reflects Junkin's conviction that she would be pursued. Pursued she was. Less than a month after she left Little Rock, Junkin was confined to the Arkansas State Hospital for Nervous Diseases, where she would spend the next four years of her life. She retained certain pleasures and privileges during her time in the hospital, including occasional letters from home, a subscription to the Arkansas Democrat newspaper, access to a measured range of reading materials, and infrequent visits from her children. However, she did so at the sufferance of her husband and the male doctors charged with legal responsibility for the mostly female patients. Junkin spent much of her four years in Jackson on a ward that was locked at night and heavily managed during the day. Several times each week, and often daily, she would record her experiences and her reflections on those experiences in one of her composition books. The last addition to her diary for January 1915, which Duncan added not long before her sectioning, is a letter from her mother, Molly Fly Chenault. The letter pleads with Duncan to return to Sweet Home to her children and to her husband. <coughs> After her mother's letter, the narrative coherence of Junkin's writing collapses into disconnected sentence fragments. A few weeks later, the diary tapers off entirely. Later that year, in November, Junkin would reestablish her relationship with the diary. She eventually began once again to write detailed, reflective narrative entries. These describe the nature of life in her hospital room. Junkin had begun her own small cottage industry of fancy work, or needlepoint, knitting, and sewing, in order to begin saving money for the literary career she hoped eventually to pursue. She was continually disappointed with the cold, short letters her husband had been sending her. A few of them contained nothing more than a single $5 bill. More difficult still were the messages she received from each of her sons. She saved these notes, pasting them into her composition book. Written in a child's unsteady hand on paper the size of a playing card, 
these penciled messages ask her to please come home as soon as possible. Much later in her life, Duncan would come to refer to her time at the state hospital as the four years she spent working from her little office. As the eventful year of 1915 drew to a close, Junkin copied one final quotation into her composition book. She then recopied it into the new book she began for 1916. Each young and ardent person writes a diary in which, when the hours of prayer and penitence arrive, he inscribes his soul. The quotation was from the man who Junkin would, across the course of her long life, up until she died at the age of 80, repeatedly identify as her favorite author, Ralph Waldo Emerson. The quotation comes from Emerson's Nature, not his better-known 1836-volume Nature, but the 1844 essay of the same title. Emerson had borrowed the sentence from his journals just over 70 years before Junkin copied it into her own. Over the course of the next several months, Junkin orchestrated in her reading and in her diary something like a duet pairing Emerson's words with the word of God as it appeared in her King James Bible. On March 29, 1916, during the run-up to an election, she reads Emerson's essay titled On Politics. On April 10th, she turns to one of his most difficult essays, The Oversoul, explaining to her diary how she takes five pages each morning. April 15th finds her dividing her time between her scrapbook and Emerson's account of character in the essay of that name. On April 19th, she begins a new quilt, which she will eventually sell. She also begins Emerson's Self-Reliance, a text she will finish reading on Saturday, April 22nd, the day before Easter and just before turning her attention back to the quilt and to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, which begins, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Over the next six months of Junkin's own captivity, she records returning to Emerson more than, more than 20 times. Over the course of the next 50 years, Emerson's star never fades. Four years after her release from the state hospital, he inspired Junkin's first mildly profitable literary venture, a thin volume of quotations titled Through the Year with Emerson, self-published in 1923. It proved a popular item with the readers she had begun to attract with her occasional newspaper articles. These are the readers she would begin to call in her diary and in conversations with others, and with absolutely no hint of irony, my public. <laughs> Those of you who know the history of Emerson's writing will recognize that Junkin's turn to Emerson was in some respects a predictable one. By the time Junkin purchased her first Repsol composition book, Emerson's fortunes had waxed, waned, and begun to wax again, at least in the United States. In the UK and in Europe, he would never be taken very seriously, either as an essayist or as a philosopher, 
if you have any doubts about this, read Virginia Woolf's rather ungenerous account of his writing, or Carlyle's frank assessment of his one-time friend and American advocate. In the post-bellum and early 20th century United States, though, as the memory of the hedonism attached to the transcendentalists began to fade, and as middle-class Christians grew willing to tolerate Emerson's emergent secularism, his writing had begun to appear as what it would for many of his readers forever remain. Eminently quotable, distinctively portable, epigrammatic, and thus a favorite destination for America's many literary, intellectual, and artistic magpies. Junkin's turn to Emerson put her in line with her contemporaries in the United States. Junkin's status as a reader of Emerson connects her backwards and forwards in time to other American readers. Kate Chopin's protagonist in The Awakening, Edna Pompelier, turns to Emerson when she decides to begin a course of self-improvement centered on reading. The minimalist visual artist Carl Andre, who read Emerson at Phillips Exeter, incorporates quotations from Emerson into his important work Passport from 1960. The list goes on. Now, the fact that Junkin's turn to Emerson was a predictable one does not make it any less intriguing. If you are a literary critic, as I am, and as some of you either are or wish to be, um, then you tend to believe, or at least I hope you believe, that the presence of literature in a person's life is a consequential one. This consequential presence is especially so if we are talking about what, for lack of a better phrase, I'll simply call the life of a reader. If nothing else, Blanche Chenault Junkin was a reader, so much so that she would, for 27 years after her departure from the nervous hospital, seek to share that interest with children by becoming a substitute teacher, primary school librarian, and reading instructor. I'm not sure that Junkin would have agreed with me on this, and perhaps some of you will not, but one of the grounding assumptions of my own thinking about American literature concerns its status as an object of attention, a status that I believe should dictate not just that we read literature, but how we read it. As I understand it, literature and its allied arts should be understood as much more than transparent windows through which we peer at a past outside the text, a past that is inherently more interesting and socially consequential than the text itself. From my perspective, if you want a window, look through a piece of glass. If you want a novel, I can tell you where to find one. If you believe, as I do, that a person enduring a four-year incarceration at a mental hospital at the hands of her estranged husband after she has been unjustly accused by her sister-in-law of trying to end the life of her youngest child, if you believe that this person, this woman reading Emerson in the American South while held under lock and key, would necessarily have been affected by the reading that she did before, during, and after her sectioning, then the questions of what she read, when she read it, how she read it, and what its effects might have been are significant ones. If you take the view, as I do, that English faculties are important not just because they produce <coughs> critical thinking, but because they ask people to think critically about literature and the other arts in particular, then you too will perhaps have some interest in the question of whether, and if so, how, Junkin was shaped by her copious reading in the Bible and her mother's copy of Shakespeare, and her father's Milton, and even in the McGuffey's eclectic reader that first taught her to read. 
You might even be especially interested, as I am, in the question of how Emerson shaped her life before, during, and after the sectioning, not least because Junkin was not the only American turning to Emerson for comfort and counsel in a time of need. As I've already suggested, Emerson's American region, readers are legion. It's to these readers that I'm turning in my current work. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for those of us who like this sort of undertaking, answering the question of what effect Junkin's reading might have had on her life, and therefore on the lives of those around her, as well as extrapolating to the wider circumstances of the period and the place, well, these things require a fair amount of work. As those of you who do this kind of work will know, you first have to determine how to frame a question that will allow you to figure out what followed what. How, in this case, the simple version of the question is, how did her reading in Emerson affect Blanche and all Duncan? Though a bit unwieldy, a more answerable two-part question might go something like this. First, what facts about the content and style of Emerson's writing, about Duncan's reading practices, and about the mechanics of reading in this period are available to us? Second, what evidence, if any, from Duncan's life suggests that these facts might have had a shaping influence on her personhood? As an initial step toward answering these questions, I'll use the rest of my time tonight first to say a few words about what scholars generally agree Junkin and her contemporaries would have found in terms of content and style when they made their way to Emerson. The questions of, I'm sorry, in, the, in terms of content when they made their way to Emerson, the questions of form and style will have to wait, unfortunately. I will then offer a brief account of one influential and now institutionally entrenched reading practice that informed Junkin's relationship with Emerson's writing, a reading practice that is both understudied and widespread in the United States today, the turn-of-the-century American pedagogical innovation known as free reading. Junkin herself was a devotional reader as well as a free reader, and she engages other identifiable and historically significant approaches to reading, However, it was free reading that would come to occupy a newly central place in American primary and secondary educational instruction over the course of the 20th century, as well as a key position in Junkin's own reading life and her teaching. The rise of free reading represented a significant shift from previously influential reading norms. Although it has had an international life, it has been especially consequential in the United States. Free reading is therefore the background against which the current form of university-level English studies has taken shape in the United States and, to a lesser degree, in the UK and in Europe. To anticipate where I'll end today, I'll suggest that without free reading and the highly developed institutional framework designed to support it, the kind of reading that contemporary English faculties teach, call it close reading, distant reading, surface reading, critical reading, choose your reading, such types of reading would have no purchase, no other reading practice against which to define themselves. It is easy enough in the spirit of contemporary English studies to point out that free reading was never really free of either ideological or material significance. In the interest of not underestimating the significance of free reading for what we do here and now, however, and in order to take a longer view of both the history of reading and any individual reader's reading life, including their experience before reaching a university, if, in fact, they did so, I'll emphasize that it's hard to imagine contemporary English studies without free reading to position as its antagonist. 
free reading and the university practice of, based practice of what I will call, for the sake of convenience, critical reading, have developed along parallel tracks, each with its own advocates, its own institutional life and funding, and its own theoretical apparatus to support it. Whether they will or even should carry over well into the 21st century is an open question. So to begin with the issue of Emerson's content, the legacy of his thought remains a matter of debate for contemporary scholars. The debate has often, though not exclusively, sorted itself into two contrasting positions and has tended to pivot around the question of Emersonian individualism. So on one hand, there's a scholarship I'll call communitarian. On the other, there are vitalists. The communitarian scholars see Emersonian individualism as a destructive force. For them, Emerson's writing and the selfhood they on those writings underwrite are hostile to the acknowledgement of our mutual dependencies and to the notion of a universal duty of care. The communitarian would highlight how Emersonian individualism emphasizes a destructive embrace of self-interest, the cultivation of an, an asocial instinct and a retreat <coughs> into the self that eventually leads to the care, careless destruction of others through a neglectful, hypertrophic inflation of the self. For the vitalists, though, Emersonian individualism is a radical and a necessary project representing a fundamental encounter with the conditions of human existence. For the vitalists, the very same inward turn objected to by the communitarians opens onto a greater awareness of our continuity with the world. The internal voice that Emerson asks us to obey articulates an instinct belonging to the world as a whole rather than to a self that is separate and distinct from the world. The vitalist account asks us to understand Emerson's attention to the individual almost as a heuristic feature of his thinking. Emerson's attention to the individual is a provisional and logically necessary way of getting at our actual lack of individuation and our continuity with the world around us. In this view, Emerson's self should always appear framed by inverted commas. It is a fictional rendering of a self that comprehends the self as separate from the world, but that simultaneously admits how that self only ever exists as a figure designed to disappear when subjected to scrutiny. So at this point, it's helpful to return to two familiar quotations from Emerson and to read them against the background of Junkin's life as well as in relation to the two different views of the meaningfulness of Emerson's writing I've been describing. The first is a well-known line from, from Self-Reliance, where Emerson writes, to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense for the inmost in due time becomes the outmost, and our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. The communitarian would suggest that this sort of thinking represents individualism run amok, an imperious, imperial relation to the world in which we mistake our own parochial views for universal ones. The vitalists would argue that Emerson understands how, at the moment of greatest privacy and retraction into the self, the self dissolves, and in doing so, merges again with all other beings, all other needs, and all other selves. These so-called selves turn out to be nothing more than retrospective imaginings describing the notional existence of particle selves that were in reality never divided from the indiv indivisible totality 
that is existence. Now, the second passage from Emerson relates even more keenly to the specific dilemma of Junkin's life. In this passage, Emerson writes, your goodness must have some edge to it, else it is none. The doctrine of hatred must be preached as the counteraction of the doctrine of love when that pules and whines. I shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls me. I would write on the lintels of the doorpost, whim. I hope it is somewhat better than whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. Expect me not to show cause why I seek or why I exclude company. The communitarian view of this passage would emphasize its self-serving qualities on one hand and its basis in socioeconomic privilege on the other. What Emerson describes might look like a brave embrace of whim as principle when undertaken by a man whose father, mother, wife, and brother do not stand in need of particular assistance. It is one thing to be willing to risk the bonds of affection linking oneself to one's close kin, especially if those close kin stand to lose nothing but the company of a kinsman who would consider such an action in the first place. The consequence of shunning those kin looks different when it involves deserting three young children to the type of father who prefers to be a caregiver to paying patients rather than to pay attention to his own children. It is also easy to embrace your whim, the communitarian would say, when, like Emerson, a tidy maintenance sum appears monthly in your bank account. Or, like Thoreau, your family bails you out of jail for your single act of disobedience. It's a more daunting prospect when, as a woman, you are barred from most professions, and when, as a woman, you would have, in the period of Emerson's writing, found yourself subject to the rule of coverture, and in Junkin's period, found yourself subject to the long arm of the law in the form of the Arkansas State Hospital for nervous diseases. The vitalist might reply that Emerson's sense of one's obligation to obey one's whim when it calls, when it calls to one acknowledges an insurmountable philosophical fact. From the vitalist viewpoint, we are no more than permanently impermanent manifestations of a vital spirit coursing through the world. We therefore remain in a state of constant transformation. In this view, what we call whim is eruption of, nat of a natural law that we have no choice but to obey. Calling it whim allows the self to save face, as it were, by rhetorically apportioning the self a degree of property in this phenomenon, as though the origin of whim lies always with an individual. In fact, what we call whim moves us rather than being embraced by us. We are incapacitated at our inception in a way that prevents us from staying anywhere for more than a passing moment. Our place in space and time is an unstable one, and to embrace our whim is to do nothing more than to face the fact of our changeable, unfolding nature. Now, assuming that one of these two views appeals to you, it doesn't have to, if you give it a matter much more than a minute's thought, you will begin to notice the various forms of risk that Junkin faced in adopting Emerson as her own. There is good evidence from her life to suggest that it was the first sense of Emerson's writing as tending to encourage a form of liberal individualist self-aggrandizement that had the strongest impact on her. Over the course of her 50 years of diaries, Junkin returns again and again to the notion that the force of her self-cultivated internal will must emerge to save her from the challenges facing her. 
She, repeated, she repeatedly finds herself in her prayers, in her reflective writings, and in her diary conversations with herself, summoning her will to do its duty and to carry her project of autonomy forward. The difficulties with this view are, of course, several. There's first the unacknowledged possibility that Junkin's internal will might have been warped by mental illness to a degree that it was transformed from a self-generating will into a self-destroying, preoccupying, ruminating, willful mess, verging on psychosis. There's the further fact that, as the communitarians would remind us, Emerson's contemplative relationship with na nature is supported by the labor of the less propertyed and often less white people around him. The same was true for Junkin. Her attempts to rescue her liberal personhood from the depredations of patriarchy as represented in the form of her husband, Dr. Junkin, led her to exploit or to ignore the people of color, primarily African-American women, who surrounded and supported her through the underpaid forms of labor available to them. The Bibleist view is potentially just as fraught with danger. Although it suggests a fluidity of personhood that would have appealed to Junkin's sense of spiritual communion, it also lacks the structured philosophical framework that would permit one to pass out of a period of collapse, such as Junkin did in fact experience, whether the etiology of that collapse extends outward to the world or inward to the self. Whatever the content of Emerson's writing, Junkin's approach to reading as techno, her actual re real-time practices of reading, Her real-time practice of reading would have had an equally formative influence on Emerson's incorporation into her life. A rich body of scholarship documents the nature of devotional reading. This includes a recent collection of essays on the history of Bible reading in America. It's very good. The studies in this collection suggest that Junkin's reading of the Bible would have been inflected by the Sola Scriptura tradition in British colonial America and the 19th century United States by the impact of the higher criticism on 19th century Unitarians, including Emerson, and by the emergent mass evangelical strain of Christianity in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. I don't have time to go into detail about the various reading protocols that follow from these theological impulses. I also think it's probably more important in this context to focus in on a different notion of reading that emerged over time and simultaneous with these others, the reading of the Bible is practiced with a long and well-documented history. There's no mystery about its ties to educational and religious institutions. The other form of reading I will now discuss, free reading, likes to present itself by contrast as an anti-institutional and anti-intellectual anti-method. Notwithstanding this, by the middle of the 20th century, it had become a key feature of institutionally-based American education. It took up space, time, and resources. It generated scores of articles in American journals of education during the first half of the 20th century. And its deliberately crafted practices became so naturalized as to seem like a response to human instinct rather than part of what free reading became, which is to say a hegemonic view of reading 200 years in the making. A view whose consequence was moreover to make any attempt to teach higher level discriminating forms of reading appear to be nothing more than an embrace of cultural elitism. The notion that there are better and worse ways to read, just as there are better and worse ways to write, ends up looking like a fatuous, high cultural interference in the natural human capacity for reading as a form of self-expression, self-confirmation, or self-culture. Given that Junkin took her first degree from a normal school or teaching college in the US, 
it should not surprise us that she became a career-long advocate of this curricular innovation known as free reading. From the perspective of the present, free reading might sound very familiar, anodyne, not that, not that remarkable. Its basic principles are that children should be given regular access to a range of reading material during school time. They should next be allowed to choose reading material suited to their individual dispositions. And they should then be permitted to read that material in silence and without guidance, intervention, compelled recitations, or anything in the way of what is now called <coughs> what is now called measurable outcomes. <laughs> Although this practice might strike us as a basic fact of modern reading life, and for most of us I think it will, it marked a radical departure from the educational practices of most 19th century American classrooms, which emphasized rote learning, set reading lists, rigid schedules dictated by masculine central authorities, and in-class recitations of the material read, at least until the rise of the new education or the progressive education reform movement slightly later in the century. As Junkin and others used free reading, though, it was not without its own protocols, many of which were debated in the educational journals of the period. Junkin's specific practices are made clear in the first of the two master's theses she completed at Peabody College of Education at Vanderbilt University. When she was in her 60s, she did two master's degrees, and then when she was in her 70s, she started a PhD at Chicago. The first thesis in sociology took up the subject of a community of squatters living on what was then called Squatter's Island on the bank of the river in Little Rock. A number of the children of Squatter, Squatter's Islands were her students, her students, sorry, and she includes within her thesis as part of her database <coughs> records of what those children read during their free reading period. A student named Jolene Davis, for example, had read five Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Little House in the Big Woods, Little House on the Prairie, House on Plum Street, a lot of houses, mm -hmm. Farmer Boy, and Long Winter. According to the photostat copy of Davis's free reading record included in Junkin's thesis, Davis found all of the Wilder books either good or very good, with one exception, Little House on the Prairie rated only fair. <laughs> As this free reading record and other aspects of her thesis demonstrate, Junkin approached free reading with a methodical eye. She kept records of her students' reading, and she encouraged them to keep records of their own as well. At the same time, she sought to meet what were understood to be the pre-existent faculties expressed as desire inherent to each student. Now, the early origins of the ideas that would eventuate in free reading uh, lie in the writings of the feckless but immensely influential and fascinating 18th century Swiss educational theorist, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, whose claim to fame rests on his novel, Leonard and Gertrude, from 1781, and on the collection of letters recording his teaching methods titled, How Gertrude Teaches Her Children, from 1801. His work would famously influence his most successful student, the more pragmatic founder of the kindergarten movement, Friedrich Feubel, excuse my pronunciation, whose ideas were taken up in continental Europe and the United States, as well as to a lesser degree in this country. Together, the writing and the practices of Pestalozzi and Feubel would constitute the foundation for the new education, or as it was eventually known, the progressive education movement. Importantly, what lay at the center of Pestalozzi Pestalozzi's and Freubel's methods were their theories of language acquisition and usage. These theories would inform the pedagogical impulses of Thomas Wentworth Higginson's famous experimental temple school in Boston in the United States, 
they would also find their way into the important document record of a school comprising Elizabeth Palmer Peabody's observations of Higginson, Higginson's teaching framework. When Foible's The Education of Man first appeared in translation in the United States, it did so with a preface written by Peabody. Now, their methods have sometimes been understood as a direct legacy of Rousseau's ideas of natural language, but at least in my reading, they're more accurately a kind of unlikely mix of thinking drawn from Rousseau and from Kant. The latter, in particular, informs a latent but nevertheless important emphasis in Pestalozzi's theories of language acquisition that assumes something pre-existent in the human mind that's reminiscent of Kant's faculties. It's an, it's an imprecise adaptation of Kant, but Pestalozzi's writings are notoriously imprecise. Their lack of conceptual rigor, though, did not prevent him from developing pedagogical practices, each of which bears on how the teaching of language skills, including reading, came to be structured in the United States. Never one to pass by an opportunity to hitch his fortunes to a messy thinker, Emerson approvingly refers to Pestalozzi in his own writing. Indeed, Emerson's own notorious opacity begins to clear up a bit when read by the light of Pestalozzi's theories of language. So too with John Dewey, whose work bears clear marks of the influence of these earlier ideas. As many of you will know, Dewey's impact on 20th century American education is hard to overestimate. At the core of these ideas about language is a doubled movement, much like Kant's, between first assuming an always already present capacity that simply needs a free reign in order to manifest, in order to manifest itself, and only then identifying a need for a guiding pedagogical hand or in this case, a voice capable of providing what Pestalozzi calls sense impressions suited to activating and sharpening the inborn faculties of the mind. In Pestalozzi's case, in particular, this would mean a career spent, as he saw it, trying to undo the damage done by forcing children to relate to the written word before they were properly prepared to do so. To Pestalozzi and others of this period, we owe the preoccupation with staged education. Thus, Pestalozzi emphasized the importance of young children working with shapes, lines, and picture books rather than written ones in order to build up a repertoire of tools for their incipient sign-making capacities, including drawing and later writing. This emphasis on the child's necessary ma mastery of capacities supposedly already inherent to the child contains the progressive educator's fundamental paradox. There's an element of progressive education that threatens to put teachers out of a job. Indeed, one of Pestalozzi's goals was not only to simplify instruction to the point that it could be undertaken by novice teachers, he goes so far as to suggest that he is not really theorizing about education for the sake of good teachers, but rather for the very bad ones. He aims to articulate a self-sufficient method of teaching that even the most incompetent teacher could not get wrong. In this framework, the teacher is at one moment a mere handmaiden to the child's process of learning. At another, the teacher threatens to stand in the way of learning. If Pestalozzi was interested in rethinking the role of the pedagogue such that pedagogical force inheres in the method rather than in the person enacting that method, he was also committed to disseminating his views to the widest possible range of people, and especially to the widest possible range of mothers. For Pestalozzi, the maternal presence was the one most likely to provide the proper measure of presence absence in a child's life. The mother's role would be to form certain sounds and to provide the child with access to those pre-linguistic lines, shapes, and picture books. 
the mother would then provide a cloud of love surrounding the child, a cloud that would void the child as the child moved into a stage of cognitive development that would permit the child to join sounds to objects in the world and to create speech. Next would come the stage when the sounds attached when the sounds that had attached to objects in the world would merge with lines and shapes and picture book images to which the child had been exposed. Now, there are many things to say about this notion of the place of reading in a child's life, as well as the place of the mother-teacher in the process of development. Since we're nearing the end of our time together, I'll limit myself to just three. First, the resonance of these ideas with contemporary common-sense thinking regarding the role of the mother in a child's life and especially in language acquisition, is striking. Pestalozzi's views identify a certain power inherent in mothers, but this understanding also leaves mothers, and by extension teachers in general, with an enduring and particular burden. They must make themselves both present and absent to the child in order for the child to enter into language in the right way. The second point would be to emphasize how much this framework understands reading to be at core an uncritical activity requiring no attempts at reflection or discernment going so far as to prohibit such an attempt. Despite his association with progressive education, Pestalozzi emphatically states, I believe the time for learning is not the time for the exercise of the child's judgment. The time for judgment comes with the completion of with the completion of learning. And if, it's, if you think that he's just talking about children, he, later in the same volume, he says, I haven't read, a, I haven't read a book in 30 years. Um, so he explains that at later stages, students might be brought to a knowledge of deliberative thinking. However, the advent of deliberative thinking is not only separate from the acquisition of language, the former is actually posited as a barrier to the latter. Third and finally, based on these observations, it's my current view, and I'm not alone in this, that one of the legacies of, the romantic, of romantic theories of pedagogy, language, and reading is an enduring incapacity to think in clear terms about the kind of reading we would like our teachers, we would like to teach our students to do, and which we claim to already be doing. So I'll close this evening with one final remark about the relation of the maternal to reading and to reading Emerson. Until I began this work several years ago, Blanche Chenault Junkin, or Junkin as I have been calling her this evening, was not Junkin, but my great-grandmother Blanche. Of course, she's still my great-grandmother, but what I mean to say is that I have worked on my current study of Emerson's 20th century readers, and as I made the decision to include her as one of the subjects of this study, she has taken on the profile of a person in history rather than just one more oddball member of my Southern family. <laughs> However, as I've been working on this lecture, I've had a change of heart about this process of distancing from Blanche, which I felt was necessary if what I am doing is to be taken seriously as a legitimate work of scholarship. What I came to realize over the course of preparing this lecture was that my distancing of myself from her, my transformation of my great-grandmother into a reading subject, as it were, had allowed me to retain both Blanche and Junkin and to understand them as separate phenomena. As a result, I was able to retain the notion that the part of me that reads for pleasure, for distraction, for entertainment, or perhaps even for maternal reassurance could be split off from the part of me that reads for critical academic reasons. 
That splitting of Blanche Chenault-Junkin into Blanche and Junkin was permitting me to imagine, against my scholarly evidence, that there is a part of the reading self that is private and separate from the historical forces that surround it. What reading Blanche has taught me, though, is that precisely when I imagine myself to be a private reader reading, that then is the moment when history has most embedded itself inside of me. This business of reading is a tricky one. At the end of Moby Dick, Melville's Ishmael returns to the scene. In a radically self-effacing final line, Melville has Ishmael describe himself as just another orphan. In reading Blanche Chenault Junkin and in writing this lecture, I've come to understand myself as just another reader. Thank you. Thank you.